0: issue for all women hello hello mickey here welcoming you to this week's sunday shops and also wishing you a happy easter no matter your religion or lack thereof may this podcast find you smeared in chocolate or cheese or whatever alternative floats your boat and enjoying the warm weather predicted for the bank holiday come on apple weather don't let us down In this chops, I natted with author Louise Kennedy, whose short story collection, The End of the World is a Cul-de-sac, garnered her all sorts of well-deserved plaudits and whose debut novel, Trespasses, is a page-turning story of love and loss set in Belfast during the Troubles. Louise's spare lyrical writing brings the tensions of living in a mixed town of Catholics and Protestants to uneasy life as people get on with their lives in a time and place where the unspeakable is just every day. Louise and I talk about the troubles and their legacy and what problems Brexit and the unresolved difficulties of the Northern Ireland Protocol might mean for the future, starting writing in your 40s and indeed the difficulties that surround a creative life at any age, dealing with cancer, and also why the joy of doomed love might just mean that readers are perverts. Trespasses is out now, published by Bloomsbury, and Louise is a glorious being. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with her and I am certain you'll enjoy her company just as much. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by author Louise Kennedy, whose debut novel, Trespasses, is – I'm not going to call it a love story, I'm going to call it a story of love set in Belfast in 1975.
1: Louise, hello. Hello, and I like that story of love is good. Love story always sounds a bit cute or something, doesn't it? And I don't know how cute it is.
0: It's not just romance. There's all sorts of love in Trespasses. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, Louise, you've won awards for your short story collection, The End of the World is a Cul-de-sac, and your acknowledgements in Trespasses begin, I appear to have written a novel, which made me laugh. (laughs) Were you surprised that Trespasses wasn't a short story?
1: Yeah, you see, I think something that happened with this short story collection, which was published like about a year ago, the final story of the collection, although it wasn't, it it ended up being the final story in the collection. It's called Garland Sunday, but it wasn't the final story that I wrote for the collection. But it ended up being around 9,000 words long, but I think I wrote over 60,000 words for that story. And at the time, because I didn't start writing until 2014, and um, so I did most of the work on those stories probably. I mean, I think for that story, I worked on it through most of 2017. First of all, it never really occurred to me to write. I fell into it by accident. And secondly, it never occurred to me to write a novel. So I was just writing short stories, and I thought, okay, so this is going to be a short story. But actually... I mean, probably structurally, it's a little bit similar to Trespasses in that there are two storylines that are kind of threaded together and you don't quite know why until the very end. And I think with on Sunday, I bummed a novel into 9,000 <laughs> words. I think maybe with that, I realised, okay, I was, I was beginning to have ideas that just were too big for the form that I couldn't figure out in 20 or 30 pages that they needed to be longer. And I suppose the other impetus I had was that in, um, in 20... Well, it wasn't 20... 18, a mole, I have like lots of moles um, on my body, like lots of people do. But one of them it was the biggest one that I had that was on my right shoulder blade. And it started to change a bit uh, kind of towards the end of 2018. And then I found out in this, you know, the following spring, like March 2019, that it was melanoma. And it wasn't just in the mole, it had, you know, gone into the surrounding tissue and also traveled to a lymph node. So I had surgery for that and found myself off work. You know, on a few good uh, tablets, I suppose. And, um, <laughs> and sitting around at home and thinking, okay, I can't really presume that I'm going to have a long life because it was stage three cancer and melanoma. And it has changed a lot now, but, you know, traditionally it hasn't been a really great uh, kind of type of cancer to get because it doesn't respond to chemotherapy or, or radiotherapy. So, um, yeah, so they got, you know, it was decided that I just have surgery and hope for the best. There's another part of that story that I'll tell you about shortly. But um, So I sat here and I thought... Fuck, like if I'm actually going to ever write a novel, I need to do it now because I might be dead in a couple of years. So um I started to write, and I guess I set myself a target, which was that I planned to write like a thousand words a day. That didn't happen every day, but it happened a lot of days. And it meant that by, I guess, the 1st of June, I had maybe 64 or 65,000 words of what could charitably call, be called a novel in the sense that it was long (laughs) it was so shit like the draft was fucking shocking (laughs) some of it was written in the second person in the present tense and because it was set in Belfast it was probably a bit alarming for anybody who would have been unfortunate enough to read it because it was like you you know um, which probably sounded terrible people were changing name they were changing religion which is like also a bit unfortunate if it's set in the north of Ireland <laughs> and the south that sort of thing very important and it was really very messy but it meant that I mean I put it away and didn't think about it very much um, but it meant that I had something to work with and now I had a lot to work with and a lot of work to do with it because it was so crazy But um, and some of it was in bullet points yeah, about like 40 pages were in bullet points because I just like freaked out and didn't know what else to do amazing <laughs> um, so a lot of work went into it obviously to fix it <laughs> But yeah, so that's how that's how I how I ended up writing a novel.
0: Well, despite its, you know, let's let's call it slightly scrappy start, it's a complete novel now. And not only that, there has been a lot of heat around *Trespasses*, including a nine-way auction to land it. And you're one of the Observer's ten best debut novelists of 2022. No pressure, mate. I mean, how does that feel? No,
1: do you know what? It's um, it's sort of funny because um, so my 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 cancer went away then, and then it came back like last autumn. So at the moment, I'm in treatment, and that means that sometimes I feel really good, and other times I feel absolutely rubbish so I'm on immunotherapy which is like a new type of drug it, it behaves very differently from, from chemotherapy so the one that I'm on it, it basically takes the brakes off your immune system and that's really great because it means that the immune system ideally can like find the cancer cells and, um, and kill them but it also means that it can get a bit mixed up and like attack me. My pituitary gland basically <laughs> exploded around Christmas and I, um, so you so it's never going to work again so I'm now on like I don't know how many synthetic hormones my thyroid is wankered and and my adrenal glands don't work anymore. And um, yeah, um, I, I, an abrupt menopause started. I don't really want to be telling the world this, don't I? Um, started as well. So I'm on lots of new tablets for all of that kind of stuff. So I spent, I guess, I spent January and February in bed, but now I'm up. I just decided I'm fed up of being sick. So I've got it up now and I'm dealing with it all with naps, which is working so far. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah.
1: So it means that with all of the publicity for the book and everything, so I'm on Twitter a lot, but usually I'm on Twitter like from bed when I'm feeling really rubbish. It feels like somebody else called Louise Kennedy wrote a book and is in The Observer and everything because mostly (laughs) I'm arsing around the house in my dressing gown googling side effects or trying to remember if I've taken my tablets for the day. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? It just feels like it doesn't have a lot to do with me but it's actually really great like for every day that that I go because I've got rubbish veins every day that I go to hospital and it takes them 40 minutes to put a line in I don't know, maybe I get an email that um, somebody has said something, somebody I really respect has said, has blurbed it um, with sort of like really beautiful words or something. So that's all good, you know?
0: Yeah. It's, just probably, it's probably
1: good timing.
0: And how are you feeling
1: in yourself? I'm all right at the moment. Um, I was feeling really terrible, but but I feel pretty good now. So yeah, it's sort of strange. The first part of the treatment was like a, a dose of two drugs together, which was really powerful. And they warned me that that would be hard. A lot of people can't tolerate it at all. And I, I did tolerate it. And the other thing is that's brilliant is that um, they appear to be working. You know, within three months, like um, the main tumour has kind of shrunk considerably, and then there are two other nodules that haven't changed at all. And bearing in mind they'd be expected to increase a lot in size, it's kind of amazing. So.
0: Oh well, everything crossed because it sounds like it's positive so far. But you know what's so weird? It's
1: not. Um, I don't know. These have, these have been probably the best years of my life in in lots of ways. I don't know why that is. It's just very strange like every time i walk onto the the day wars i learn something about people or about myself or something um it's kind of amazing
0: it's interesting although obviously i would wish you nothing but great health but mortality being pushed in our faces mm-hmm. it's a big part of trespasses as well right mm-hmm. yeah it probably
1: is actually you know i never thought about that it actually probably is isn't it yeah um yeah i guess that maybe that was going on subconsciously it certainly wasn't intentional at all that's really
0: interesting i haven't thought about it like that so the blurb for trespasses describes how catholic primary school teacher kushler meets michael Mm -hmm. a married man in the pub owned by a family he's not just married he's protestant so it's no spoiler that as a reader you go in knowing it's probably not going to have a happy ending so you know we covered this off air but thanks for making me cry (laughs) why do you think we're so drawn to doomed
1: love stories I don't know, that's very interesting because uh, this came up before uh, with me I suppose it's just about what makes fiction or something, so you you know in real life we wish people well and we want them to be happy and stuff, but I don't know what it is, there's there's maybe some sort of a I went to a writing workshop with an Irish writer called Sean O'Reilly, and he put it in a really hilarious way. And what he said was, the reader is a pervert. <laughs> 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 it's the reader is a pervert. Um, it was a really fantastic thing to say. And I suppose what he meant was, you know, I had um, someone um, said said to me, oh, you know, about my short story collection, all the men it are terrible, you know, these poor put-upon women and the men are all bastards you know there's one story in particular and it's where there's a young pregnant woman who's like lugging a, a baby around she's about a year old and she's heavily pregnant and she lives on a farm and she's looking up the this kind of frozen across this kind of snowy fields at this lambing shed where her husband is in the lambing shed doing the lambing with this like implausibly and sort of unhelpfully glamorous 19 year old you know you're really willing things to to go well like she's very anxious she's feeling really shit about her body and everything and um, you know like two pregnancies in two years like everything's going south and and she's, like, not feeling good about him being in the shed with this young man. And I suppose her worst fears come true. And people said to me, oh, my God, that was terrible. And I said, but, like, if he had come down the field at lunchtime and the wife is, like, wearing some sort of lower Ashley maternity dress and fabulous, and he chooses to behave himself, like, where's the fucking drama in that? Like, who actually wants to read it? <laughs> so I guess there's some of that that it's maybe, maybe it's just more kind of suspenseful and entertaining or something to read about doomed love stories. Absolutely we all probably have kind of Emily, uh, yeah, Emily Bronte disease from school and stuff as well don't we kind <laughs> of love on the of the come on let us into your
0: window <laughs> trespasses is set in the troubles mm-hmm. at one point one of your characters asks is this a war and another replies mm-hmm. I don't know what else I'd call it but mm-hmm. it does feel like 50 years on and in the aftermath of Brexit the troubles have been if not forgotten
1: mm-hmm. trivialised yeah, I think this is problematic for a lot of people who live in the North. I mean, I think there are a few things going on, you know, it's, um, you know, the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998. That did a number of things. I probably need to preface this by saying that not every political party in the North went along with it. And the party that didn't go along with it, the significant one was the DUP. And they um, currently have, you know, the first minister post, Well, they've actually just um, thrown the toys out of the pram yet again and collapsed the um, executive, you know, for quite a lot of the time executive doesn't function because you know it's impossible to reach agreements on, on the irish language and stuff like that you know there are just so many problems with it and the dup in my opinion are particularly intransigent and unwilling to work They're also very conservative you know to be fans of donald trump in a lot of cases and um, they'd be very conservative on things like women's re- reproductive rights and um, um like terrible attitudes to um, to difference in general actually horrible to gay people and stuff just horrible attitudes actually really generally so it's really difficult for, for things to function when they are in government. I think what the Good Friday ad- Agreement did was to bestow on every single person in the island of Ireland to call themselves whatever the hell they liked. And in a place where identity is really, you know, has caused death and, uh, and caused all those years of conflict, it did actually solve a lot of problems. And it meant that I am, uh, you know, of Northern uh, nationalist origin and my family would always have identified as Irish, but not publicly because of the place that we lived in. So we lived in an area very much like Cushlet's town uh, where we we were in the minority and really us living there depended on us being really quiet and not rubbing anybody's noses in the fact that we were Catholics so we had to just really you know our our identity was kind of subsumed into this sort of uh, Protestant middle class I suppose that was there and that sounds all well you know sort of it probably doesn't sound terribly stressful but it actually kind of was because you know we had a neighbour who was um, abducted and murdered in a very similar fashion to what happened fictionally to a character in in, in the book and stuff like that uh, one of the minor characters but So I suppose people are allowed to call themselves whatever they liked. And also I think what was hugely important was that membership of the European Union gave everybody on the island an identity that was bigger and broader and we felt more positive and stuff. And it just opened the kind of narrow little world of this little sectarian hole that the North was all through the Troubles into something just much wider. And not only has it caused all of those problems with the border and the protocol and and uh, wound up you know, certain very small sections but they're there all the same of maybe the loyalist community who are, are, are making noises that they won't tolerate the protocol and, and uh, hinting that they'd really prefer a return to violence you know putting out sort of half-assed death threats on politicians from the south going to the north all of this sort of thing what it also did was, you know, Brexit basically denied all of the nationalists in the north their European status, mm-hmm. which is outrageous. And the majority of people in the north of Ireland didn't even vote for Brexit. You know, it was in the middle. <laughs> so this is, so these are huge problems. I think maybe um, a lot of people I mean I think a lot of nationalists kind of uh, maybe understood that um, that the British government didn't really particularly give a shit and that, I'm sure ordinary people in Britain don't really think a lot about the North when they're walking around the place but I think maybe for um, for a lot of unionists it's been probably surprising and um, very disappointing to them how little Boris Johnson certainly cares about it you know so they probably need to wise up about that I think
0: When he's a, an absolutely gaping arsehole I've got no room to be surprised
1: anymore Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, we've had it baffling. And it's just so worrying, you know. And, and I think especially, you know, for people in the border communities and stuff, because literally at the start of the Troubles, roads were blown up to stop people from crossing back and forth across the border. Like entire livelihoods and communities were destroyed. It ended up being almost like bands of country with stuff being moved back and forth across the border. And then they had 20 years of people living quite normally, passing back and forth. I mean, it's certainly all of the hardware partition was removed and it wasn't quite so obvious and stuff and it wasn't militarized or paramilitarized and it meant a sort of a normal life for people there and you know people who built up sort of restaurants and stuff like that are are bars and and, and lives and now that's under threat again you know um, and maybe these are kind of small problems but they're in the you know grand scheme of things but they're enormous for the people who live there yeah i don't
0: don't think they're they're small things at all yeah they're huge and the fallout as well of kids in the seventies, eighties, nineties, in mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, I think I read in an interview that you described yourselves as a generation raised by nervous wrecks,
1: complete nervous wrecks. Yeah, and understandably like, so, yeah, yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, like my friend's father was in the police, and um, she lived across the road. He was a Catholic um, a police officer, probably unusual. Countless times I saw him dropping to his, butt, you know, his stomach to check under his car for a bomb. And my father did it for a while in the job that he worked in. Um, where he was the only Catholic in a huge uh, workforce of about 160 people. You know, we had a bar in the north that bombs were planted in three times. Uh, the, the final one detonated. Yeah, it's, it's just all of that sort of stuff. And I think our parents sort of tried to protect us from us, but, but they couldn't, you know. Um, and, and I think also uh, uh, another huge aspect of us that I think was really bad for us was that we had to, even as children, we had to be really careful about what we said. And I think that's very bad for you, that we had to be really careful. I think, you know, as, as children, pretty soon we uh, learned to look for the signals to identify what religion the person... We were, the, the child we were speaking to was, not very often you'd know because they lived nearby they went to a different school. Like, they all had uniforms and we didn't. So we always looked a bit kind of um, raggle taggle going around the place. But, um, yeah, so all of that was really important. Yeah, it's just a layer of stress or something. Completely not normal. But then other things were so normal. I mean, we watched the Multicoloured Swap Shop on a Saturday morning and we, watched, we waited for the popular pop talk you know, washed bagpuss in her pyjamas. Like, it was the same as, you know, on children's childhood in England or Scotland or Wales, I suppose, but um, except that we had all of this mayhem going on in the background. Your
0: characters are ordinary people trying to live ordinary lives with all of the everyday joy, heartache, mistakes, bullshit (laughs) and betrayals that that entails in Mm -hmm. desperate times that have become everyday because they are just there all the time. (laughs) And so it might be set in the 70s, but Trespasses feels very timely and Mm -hmm. i think sadly it's always going to feel timely
1: yeah i have a a sort of a horrible feeling about that as well you
0: started writing at 47 which you know is bloody ace and there are loads of reasons that people particularly women maybe don't have the time or the energy space to write when they're Mm -hmm. younger and that there's a focus on youth being the be-all and end-all in society is absolutely nothing new but I mean it really fucks my goat that there are so many under 30s lists in publishing and I'm not meaning to blow smoke up your arse but your writing is beautiful and it's informed by experience I'd love that you found your writing voice at the age where we women traditionally become invisible
1: Thank you very much for saying lovely things about writing. Okay, so I have a few theories here, right? I get asked about this a lot. I have a few things, okay? You know, when I see those lists, I don't begrudge the under 30s who end up on those lists. I am so happy for them because I think that everybody needs a bit of help. But what I do question is, um, you know, there are factors such as women in their sort of 40s, 50s and 60s tend to be at a kind of economic disadvantage to men of a similar age. So why they don't need help is kind of beyond me. I also think that in this day and age I don't think everybody but I think for uh, you know to sort of have a life and devote yourself to the arts you do need a few bob and for anybody who's able to do that in their 30s and stuff without having to take a second job and everything I'd be curious about that I think there are not issues about class
0: I was going to say we lose a lot of working class voices absolutely and and that's
1: not to say um, you know I'm not talking about any writers in particular and I know it's not the case with everybody but I am very curious about um, yeah I don't know I'm curious about how people would be able to afford to um, kind of um, be young and pay rent in a big city and um, have a kind of creative life. Like, what's that about? How, like, how could anybody to this day and age? I, yeah, and I think um, because education used to be a lot more democratic and now it costs a fucking fortune, so that excludes loads of people, you know, and, and like how was, I don't know, like, say if you're, you know, okay, so I joined this writing group uh, in, in Sligo, and it was completely um, against my will. I was kind of bummed and said, by a friend of mine, And I was at a really shy time in my life. Myself and my husband had um, a restaurant that was going very badly. It has been limping along for, you know, years. And this was in February 2014. And the the restaurant actually thankfully fucking died in um, August that year and and, like liberated me from the hell of it. But um, I think those last few months when, when we did have that business, because I'd started writing I actually didn't really give a shit about it anymore it just um, every time I sat down to try and write I really literally didn't care what was going on off the road or if, if, the, if we're going to lose the house or I didn't care anymore The things that have kept me away for years and years I just didn't care anymore so I don't know what that was about anyway I suppose well, the people in the writing group with me were mostly women in their I guess 40s, 50s there was uh, older as well actually mid 60s 70s uh, possibly as well but you know people were they had children who were, they were trying to educate them you know a lot of them had worked or maybe they'd they'd been at home or they'd nursed for, uh, elderly people and stuff like that how the actual fuck were they supposed to have written anything mm. also even just by having babies and stuff like I was I couldn't even read a novel never mind uh, write one <laughs> yeah. after for about 10 years after um, I had my children um, i couldn't read fiction i swear to god i can only read nonfiction. there's something about you know the way you have to suspend your disbelief or something and i think that things were just so real with having small children and having to go out to work that i just couldn't allow myself any sort of fantasy time or any sort of imaginative time at all even just as a reader
0: yeah yeah it's really hard to immerse yourself in another world when you're picking
1: fish fingers out of your hair right well, absolutely. And then there's also this sort of, I don't know, I, I found as well that um, I used to be kind of pretty fearless about a lot of stuff and I think when I had children I ended up being afraid of everything. You know the way you start to see perils everywhere because you think that they're going to like drown or they're going to fall off a wall and bash their heads or something like that. And I ended up, you know, ended up being kind of a bit afraid of swimming for a while and, and then after what I got in the plane in the phone. of my god in my diary all the time, you know this sort of thing it's just getting like generally very nervous or something but that's I mean I guess all oh, that's the side the point in my neuroses <laughs> This idea anyway that um, those only young writers need to, to be supported it's just fucking annoying at the moment I'm reading a collection of short stories by a writer called Jane Campbell who is 80 and she's fucking unreal and her first book is about to be published isn't that just unbelievable that's incredible she is unreal yeah. Um, she's so good that she, I think, on spec sent a, a short story to the uh, London Review of Books. And um, Mary Kay Wilmers found it and read it and said, publish it, even though they don't publish fiction. Like, she's so good. But, but also, you know, I I don't know if this sort of age thing is really very good for younger writers as well. I mean, like, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm just not ever going to be bornified, you know? Whereas I think some of the younger ones, it's, I don't know, I just don't like some of the marketing and stuff where, um, I don't know I mean I, I read with some some interesting some man like an academic I should have known better said something about Sally Rooney having like these marvellous full lips what the fuck like they don't talk about men like that you know and these are also these really reductive conversations that she had to have after her first book it's like well if you had an affair with the married man like, just mind your own fucking business and don't be rude like you just these are questions that just would not be asked of men
0: mm-hmm.
1: agreed you No, know? and they are commodified I think to a huge extent I don't know so um yeah, I mean, I'd much rather be older, but I, in lots of ways, in general in my life, because I was a fucking idiot in my 20s. Um, <laughs> it's terrible. But I think, um, yeah, like we all need help, financial help. And, and also sort of career advice and stuff as well, you know. There's all that sort of mentoring that could be done.
0: You've been really candid in interviews about how the writing groups helped you and how mm-hmm. you wouldn't be where you are today without the bursaries that came from well, winning yeah, totally. awards, et cetera.
1: Yeah. And I think we yeah. just need to keep those conversations going. Oh, yeah, totally. It's really important. And, uh, like, even something like, it doesn't sound like a huge amount, but five grand, like, you can eat that out for a long time, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, that's like a part-time job that you can drop for six months or something like that, you know, to to keep yourself going. That's really important. Like, really important. And I think it's not even just financially. I think to get that validation is, like, amazing at the start as well because, I mean, I guess most of us are just kind of screaming into the void and hoping that, like, it's all right or something. I think that maybe if... um, You know, if if some sort of a a, a body or a a few judges or something like that around a prize think that your work is good enough, then it it does kind of make you feel great and make you feel... But there's a point in continuing, you know? Yes. Because it is hard in ways, you know?
0: Well, I, I can absolutely confirm that Trespasses is excellent. It is published by Bloomsbury on April the 14th and available in all good bookshops. I'd just recommend picking up a packet of tissues alongside your copy. Louise, where can people find out more about what you're up to, please?
1: okay so i'm on twitter way too much my handle is what is it kennedy lulu i think um and um, i'm on instagram i'm really rubbish at that so uh, that's uh, hashtags give me high blood pressure so i'm on instagram as well
0: <laughs> i think that's your next novel hashtags give me high blood pressure <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah so mostly twitter all
0: the time awesome thank you so so much for chatting with me uh not at all thank you so much for having me it was
1: great thank you mickey